This is an ABC podcast. COP27, President Shukri, Your Majesty's Excellencies, dear friends. When the latest United Nations Climate Change Conference got going in Egypt recently, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres opened with a very emotive and personal tone. In just days, our planet's population will cross a new threshold. The eight billionth member of our human family will be born. This milestone puts into perspective what this climate conference is all about. How will we answer when baby eight billion is old enough to ask, what did you do for our world and for our planet when you had the chance? It's hard to argue with the idea that we all have a responsibility for dealing with climate change, that it's not just up to governments and companies to reduce emissions. It's actually about personal responsibility. But does that kind of argument, which is becoming increasingly popular in certain circles, does it risk allowing governments and businesses to avoid their responsibilities? The individual versus the system, a growing environmental blame game. That's where we start our program today. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. You're with Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Now, first up, Earth scientist Michael Mann. He's one of those who believes the personal responsibility line is problematic, to say the least, and deceptive at its worst. We've sort of gotten beyond what I would call the old climate war that had gone on for decades in Australia, here in the United States, this effort by fossil fuel companies and conservative politicians and and media outlets advocating for them, this effort to convince the public that climate change is a hoax, that it's not real or that it's not a problem. And the problem with, you know, that tactic is that, you know, people, and certainly that's true in Australia, I was there during the Black Summer. It's true with the extreme weather events that we have experienced here in North America, what we've seen in Europe. The impacts of climate change have become so obvious to the person on the street that the forces of inaction, I call them the inactivists, they can no longer claim that climate change isn't happening. So that doesn't mean that they've given up this battle. They've just turned to other tactics in their effort to keep us addicted to fossil fuels. And that includes efforts to divide the climate community, get advocates fighting with each other, sort of divide and conquer, deflect our attention away from the needed systemic changes to individual behavior as if all of the needed action is simply you know, individual behavioral change. So these are a few of the tactics that I sort of detail um, as part of what I call the new climate war. And we have to recognize those tactics because they are now the primary obstacle to seeing the action that we ultimately need to see to confront the climate crisis. I'm not sure I mentioned this, but Michael Mann is a presidential distinguished professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Of course, at some level, it's true, right? We should all do everything we can as individuals to minimize our environmental impact, minimize our carbon footprint. And many of the things that we do in that effort, they save us money, they make us healthier, 
they make us feel better about ourselves. They set a good example for other people. So why wouldn't we do these things? They're low-hanging fruit, and there are no regrets actions that we can take that make our world a better world. The problem is when this is presented as the entire solution, as if all that's necessary is for individuals to just you know, voluntarily change their behavior. We understand, economists have understood for a very long time, that if you want to see large-scale behavioral change, you need policies that incentivize those changes. You need to make renewable energy cheaper so it can compete fairly against fossil fuel energy. You need to provide incentives to people when they choose climate-friendlier choices in transportation and how they go about getting their electricity. So we need to make sure that the incentives are such that people will make those climate-friendly choices whether or not they're actively thinking about them. We need everybody to make those changes, not just the people who might prioritize climate action. And that's why we need systemic changes. We need policies. So we need both individual behavior, but that alone isn't going to get us the, the massive reductions in carbon emissions that we need to see. Only systemic changes that collectively help us decarbonize our economy are going to accomplish that. So beware of the argument that the fight against climate change has to come from the bottom up. But that's not to say that individuals are off the hook. Philosopher Michael Brownstein argues that an overemphasis on the responsibilities of corporations and government system, if you like, well, an overemphasis there also has its flaws. One of the things that motivated me to do this work was having worked previously over the past 15 years on anti-racism and bias and prejudice, and noting that the same sort of debate happens there where people recognize that there are institutions and systems and structures that perpetuate the problem, and then they make a move to say that it's really wrongheaded to think of racism in terms of individuals' biases and prejudices. What we really need to do are change those institutions and systems. And when I came to start doing work on climate change, I saw the same sort of debate being replicated. You also see it in debates about poverty reduction, and education, political misinformation, even conversations about well-being and happiness and so on. And you say, don't you, that differentiating between the individual versus a structural collectivist approach for climate change isn't just wrong, it's counterproductive. It can make things worse. Can I get you to explain why? It's not necessarily wrong in all contexts. I think the concepts of changing individuals and changing systems and structures can be useful if we use them in the right ways, but I think a lot of the time we don't. So part of the problem is that it can be incoherent to compare changing systems to changing individuals. If what you're trying to do is think about where you can have the most bang for the buck for your effort. It's like comparing apples and oranges. It's what philosophers would call a category mistake. So it's perfectly coherent to compare one kind of structural change to another, say a carbon tax to a renewable portfolio standard. And it's also perfectly coherent to compare something an individual can do to another thing an individual can do, like riding your bike to work versus joining a climate advocacy group. Where we get mixed up is where we try to compare across categories. So what I think is that the important thing to do is to think about what we can do as individuals to bring about changes in systems and structures, 
And then on the flip side of the coin, when we're thinking about which systems and structures to try to change, we need to think about how that sits with and works for the people who those systems are going to affect. I also think the debate can be demotivating in a way, and this may be what you were getting at. Oftentimes, the way it reads is people telling you that the important thing to do, like fighting fossil fuel companies or ending global capitalism, is impossible. Whereas the things that you can do, like riding your bike to work or reducing the amount of meat you eat or taking fewer international plane flights, are sort of meaningless. And so that kind of leaves me when I hear that message, that structural change is what matters, the things you can do don't matter, in a kind of motivational morass. Like if that's the case, then why would I do anything? And so what I'm trying to do is provide some better tools for thinking about social change that are both more coherent and also more motivating. And we'll come to those approaches in, in just a moment. The issue of bang for buck, if you like, you know, one common argument is that focusing on individual responsibilities and potential actions could distract from the bigger and more effective impact that structural reform could have, say, on an issue like carbon footprint. Is it wrong to think that way? No, I don't think it's wrong to think that way. The problem is that the point is often made presuming that thinking about things we can do as individuals takes away from or distracts from other things that we might do with a more structural or systemic focus. When in fact, that's an empirical question. So handy set of tools that some psychologists use for focusing the mind in the right way on this question are what they call positive versus negative spillover. So spillover is the idea that one thing you do affects the next thing you do. And one possibility is that you go and you, you know, recycle or you buy an energy efficient appliance, and then you sort of wash your hands and think you've done your good deed and that's all you need to do. You don't need to go door knock for pro-climate candidates or, or join an advocacy group. That would be negative spillover. And that's the worry about distraction. But it's perfectly possible. And there's research to suggest that in some contexts, what happens is positive spillover. That the first thing that somebody does, like buying the energy efficient appliance or putting solar panels on the roof, is like a foot in the door to doing other things that have a more systemic or structural approach. And so when I say it's an empirical question, I mean, it's not wrong to worry about distraction, but we really need to find out whether certain kinds of individual messages really do distract people or rather have the opposite effect of motivating them to get busy. So is the idea there that, for example, solar technology, the more individuals who feel passionate about climate change, who buy solar technology will in some way inspire governments or, or companies to look more towards solar in future than, say, fossil fuels? Yeah, that's one possibility. So you could think of positive spillover as happening in two different ways. So one way it can happen is that, say, you put panels on your roof. That could trigger other people, including governments and legislators and representatives, to see that you're doing that and then to take action on their own. And there's evidence to suggest, particularly in the case of solar, that, that is often what happens. So the best way to predict who's going to put panels on their roof is by looking to see if their neighbors have done it. The other kind of positive spillover is within the same person. And that's what I had in mind before when I was saying that, you know, you might take some first small step and that leads you to then take further steps. So if you put the panels on your roof, maybe then you feel good about yourself and you take on something like a the identity of somebody who does something about climate change. 
And then you go on and you join a group that tries to elect the right candidates or get people to vote for the right sort of referenda or, or whatever the, the right systemic change is. Is there a broader ideological issue at play here? I mean, is this debate, argument, this kind of contrast between individual responsibility and structural responsibility, is it reflective of a broader political debate between liberal individualism and uh, more communitarianism, uh, more socialist thinking about the role and the place of individuals within society? It is, but it's very complicated. It's like a big mismatch. So you see these debates between what I would call individualists and structuralists in political philosophy, like the kind that you're referencing between liberal individualism and more communitarian approaches. You see it in the American context in debates between Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives. You also see it in cross-cultural research comparing countries with an individualist history, a history of, of emphasizing personal responsibility with more collectivist cultures. So there's a lot of cross-background influences here that manifest differently in specific conversations about, say, climate change. Philosopher Michael Brownstein from City University of New York. Now, the possible ideological underpinnings of this debate between individualists and structuralists, as Professor Brownstein would have it, has also been observed by Professor Matthew Hornsey in his research at the University of Queensland. When I went into the research on climate change, I sort of imagined that people would appraise climate change a little bit like this, where you would come in with an open mind and you'd evaluate the evidence. And then only after you've waved your hands around all the evidence that people would reach a conclusion. When I was doing my research, it became apparent that many people don't operate like that. Many people start with a conclusion in mind. And so they have a gut feeling or they have an ideologically driven preference for what to believe about climate change. And then they work backwards. So they selectively attend to evidence and they selectively critique evidence. And they selectively remember evidence in a way that reinforces that conclusion that they want to believe. So I realized after a while that I had to pivot my question. I, I, I no longer ask the question, why are people climate skeptical? For example, I ask the question, why would people want to be climate skeptical? What are the things that are motivating that type of conclusion? And when I was investigating that, ideology definitely popped out as one of the key factors. And, and particularly, a cluster of ideologies that revolved around the relationship between the individual and the state. So some people have a sense that the market should be free, that there's a sanctity of the free market, they're suspicious of big governments, they feel as though individuals should be free to operate without being told what to do by governments, etc. If you do have that worldview, then climate science is extremely inconvenient because in many ways it does, in fact, imply a big government response that is designed to regulate the freedom of individuals and markets to do exactly what they want. And so rather than come on board with that solution, which some people find ideologically objectionable, there's a temptation to just reject the science. And so that was what we were finding, that if there's one thing you need to know about predicting people's attitudes around climate change, it really did end up being around these values-driven orientations towards the relationship between the individual and the state and also people's political orientation. And people who have a high regard, let's say, for hierarchy within society, where do they fit? Yeah, that was one thing that's popped out in the literature is that there's some people who 
a comfort with hierarchies. So they think the power and status differences are normal and natural parts of life, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to be ashamed of. Whereas other people have got more egalitarian views and they think that power and status differences are things to reduce. It turns out that people who have got these more hierarchical worldviews tend to be more climate skeptical. They're less likely to be concerned about climate change. They're less likely to want to do something about it. And, you know, one of the arguments for this is that if you're comfortable with power, you're comfortable with status, you can lean into the notion of big business having an influence over society in a way that egalitarians tend to feel nervous about. And so anything that's designed to curb the influence of big business is something that hierarchical people are probably less attuned to. And so these ideological ideas, these ideological persuasions, if you like, are they more important to people than their own personal experience of extreme weather or science literacy? That's one thing that really shocked me. I did a a meta-analysis, which basically involves crunching together hundreds of studies, looking at what do people think about climate change? Do they think it's real and caused by humans or not? And the things that popped out as the biggest predictors of that had nothing to do with climate and nothing to do with science. So it was these values-driven things around individualism, hierarchialism, belief in the free market. And that predicted much more so than things like, do, are people good at science? Are they science literate? Are they educated? Or if they personally experienced extreme weather events like droughts and floods, you'd think that those things would be very proximal to how people feel about climate science. But in fact, they were blown out of the water by ideology. So some societies are more individualist than others. And these issues are just live wires in individualist societies. I also think, though, that we have some cognitive and psychological biases that lead us to end up with these sorts of conundrums. So one, for example, is what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error, which is basically the idea that we are all disposed to look at individuals as responsible for when things go wrong than we are to look at the situation. And so part of the challenge here is just overcoming some habits of mind that we have for looking to people rather than systems, or in other contexts, looking at systems rather than individual people. So what can be done? Overcoming mindsets is quite a difficult thing, isn't it? We know that with the the kind of political arguments that we have all the time. What are some of the steps that we can take as a society to try and bridge this divide and and end up with some kind of complementary approach to dealing with issues like climate change? I mean, I'll start with a really simple, concrete example. Suppose you're thinking about commuting to work on a bike rather than driving a car. I think a typical way of thinking about whether to do that and whether it's a meaningful action is to think about how much greenhouse gas emissions you would save. But another way to think is in terms of how normal and natural and popular you're making it seem to your friends and neighbors and community by being a bike commuter. You're standing for a new norm when you do that. And if you think in that way, it might lead you to take further steps, like to talk to your friends and family and neighbors about why you're riding your bike to work. And that can help create that new norm and help it catch fire and become a more common thing. Now, that's a, that's a small shift in mindset, but I would think of it as symbiotic rather than individualist or structural, because what you're really doing is taking action as an individual 
but it's an action that you see yourself as part of this systemic change rather than just as a drop in the bucket of your greenhouse gas emission. So what does all of that mean for the type of messaging that we use around climate change? You know, we often appeal to a generic sense of the importance of science or understanding science and, and moral arguments. Do we need to focus more on motivations? What will motivate individuals? Messaging is tough because I think there's a tendency sometimes, especially amongst progressive activists who have been the most involved in climate activism, to think that there's some magic words we can find that are going to all of a sudden get everyone fired up to to get involved. Um, I think messaging matters, and there are ways to frame the issue where you're not demotivating people and you're connecting their individual responsibility and their individual actions to systemic problems. But I also think that there is no magic formula. One thing that people who work in in climate communications like to talk about is the importance of targeting messages to different kinds of people. That's not a new idea, but the basic gist of it is if you're talking to evangelical Christians in the American context, you might frame climate change as a way of taking responsibility for nature. And if you're talking to military people, you might frame climate change in terms of national security. I think that's promising. I, again, don't think it's a magic solution. But the reason it's promising is because people can play different roles in a collective effort. And I think thinking about our roles is itself emblematic of the kind of symbiotic approach that I'm talking about. Everyone can have a role in the fight to create an equitable future. And those roles might be really different. They might be just talking to your neighbor about why you're riding a bike to work, or they might be trying to convince your company to switch its 401ks to investment funds that don't invest in fossil fuel companies. There are myriad options And I think messaging that focuses on those individual roles in creating systemic change is where I think there's a lot of promise. So perhaps it's time to put to rest the increasingly popular dichotomy between individual responsibility for climate action versus the role of political and corporate systems. Either or scenarios lend themselves to ideology and polarisation. And as we've heard, they also confuse the messaging needed to motivate action. Dr Jonathan Foley is the executive director of the climate strategy group Project Drawdown. People are very much aware of climate change as an issue, and most Americans at least, over 90% of Americans firmly believe in one degree or another that climate change is real. That's pretty good. But about 60% of Americans are also really freaked out about climate change and call themselves alarmed or concerned about climate change. But yet only 1% to 2% of Americans are really engaged on the issue. So people are aware and they're worried, but they're not that engaged. And I think what we've done with the messaging of climate change is we talk so much about the problem. In America, over 99% of the media coverage is about the disasters and the problems and the fear and the danger of climate change. Less than 1% of the media coverage is about solutions. So I think we need to change that mix a little bit and say there are problems. There are serious problems and they could be dangerous. But there are also great solutions at our fingertips as well. And they can make our lives better. So I think if we kind of see this as a more balanced between there are problems and there are solutions, 
And the solutions are good for us. They make our lives better. We need to understand the urgency of the problem, but we also have to have a sense of agency that we have over solving it. And when we combine those two together, like you may have a terrible illness and there are great medical treatments to resolve it. Same thing's true with climate change. We have tremendous problems and we have outstanding solutions to the problem. And let's talk about those a little bit more and get those out into the world. And that can include leading by example, showing that this isn't just theoretical or an argument on Facebook, but you can actually do this, save money and have a better life while you're doing it. But again, I think the whole communication around climate change needs to be a little less dominated by fear alone and bad news alone, but a mixture of the good and the bad, because that's where the real world is. The good news is we have most of the solutions we need already. Almost all the things we need to do in terms of energy and food and buildings and transportation and so on, almost all that is here, but we need to adopt those solutions and scale them dramatically. To do that, we're gonna need the help of every part of the system from individuals, families, communities, all the way to big governments and corporates and multinationals from top to bottom, from big to small, everywhere in the world. So when we talk about changing the system, it changes at every level, including with us. So it turns out that yes, behavior change and our personal actions are part of that system, not the whole part, we can't do all of it, but we can do a sizable amount. And some of it is stuff we need to lead at the personal level. Analyses I've seen from our group and others show that you know somewhere around a third of the most important climate solutions probably have their biggest leverage at the individual level. Things like reducing food waste, shifting our diets, making somewhat different transportation choices, things like that. But also you know, where we invest our money, how we talk about climate change to others, how we end up voting. Those are also very important things we do as an individual. So it's hard to be exact about that, but we think you know somewhere around one in three kind of actions around climate change are kind of in the hands of us as individuals sometimes. And that must be married then with political momentum and, and a systemic approach to change? Yeah, um, it's sometimes presented as a binary choice. Either you work at the macro kind of top level in politics or something, and you focus on that, or you do individual choices. And of course it's both, it's both and. We need big changes in our own behavior, absolutely. We need big changes in policy. We need big changes in capital flows and where investments are going. We need big changes in how businesses work. And it's yes and yes and yes and all the way across. It isn't a choice of one or the other, it's all of the above. And the good news is by doing the individual actions ourselves, we are sending political and economic and social signals to the other parts of the system. We may think that we only affect policy by voting in a polling booth and voting for the right minister or member of Congress or the right president or whatever, sure. But by also modeling that behavior yourself every day by sending money to climate solutions as opposed to big oil every day, by sending social signals to other people that, hey, electric cars and high performing homes and low impact diets are good things, you're actually enabling policymakers to do better. Policymakers, you know, politicians, let's face it, they're mostly kind of cowards. <laughs> they're not bold leaders most of the time. They usually follow what was already going to happen and taking credit for it, 
rather than pioneering and leading and sticking their necks out. These people want to keep their jobs. They don't want to, you know, they don't rock the boat. So it's a lot easier for politicians to kind of catch a wave that's already happening, like electric cars becoming popular in the world, or maybe a change in diets or a new kind of technology. And if you can help that make that wave a little bit bigger with your personal decisions, like, hey, I'm driving the electric car. So now the politician has more license to say, hey, maybe we should give tax breaks to other people who want to buy electric cars, because a lot of people already are. So again, that's kind of how our individual actions, in addition to voting, helps enable policy actions by setting a new norm, socially and economically and politically, out there for the world to see. You know, we vote in a polling place once every two years, every four years, whatever, but we vote every day with our behavior and our pocketbook and what we do. Dr. Jonathan Foley. This is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Hey, it's Joe Lauder here and I've got a brand new podcast I want to tell you about. It's called Who's Going to Save Us? And it's a climate change podcast that's not strictly about climate change because we know climate change is real and we're all too familiar with the devastation it's causing. Who's Going to Save Us is a show about how much better things could be and the people fighting to get us there, like the climate scientists pushed to their limits by a lack of action, the traditional owners fighting back to stop major gas projects on their land, and some uni students who've taken their idea for a climate change court case from their classroom in Vanuatu to the UN. The science team at ABC RN and the team at Triple J Hack have been travelling all around the country to meet the people making real change and making it now. Who's Going to Save Us is your roadmap to a better future. Find it now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.